Take your Bibles with me and open them back to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Some of you know this week we had a kind of a, a miniature uh, hosting of pastors from around the state and ministers from around the state to watch a pastor's conference. And I told those guys this week that every time I watch good preachers, I'm remembered how gracious the Lord is to y'all by allowing me to preach because I'm nowhere near them. And so I always walk away feeling like, man, i got a long ways to go. And then I remembered, we're coming back to Luke 6 where Jesus is preaching. And now I really feel like I have a long way to go because this is the greatest preacher who's ever opened his mouth. This is the our, our master teacher. Everything that uh, God has to say, Jesus can so perfectly expound upon. And so... Um, I come this morning uh, a little set back and hoping that you just see God's words for what they are and, and be moved by them. We find ourselves back in the kind of the middle of this sermon, sermon in Luke chapter 6. We'll pick up in verse 27, but you remember last week Jesus began this sermon of His looking at what we call the, the blessed life, the life that's worth living, the life that God deems as important and good and worth pursuing. And it's so different from what the world defines as a good life, isn't it? The world says that a good life is made up of wealth, popularity, influence, and Jesus says, no, no the blessed life is actually the life that's for the poor and the hungry and the broken and, and the hated. It's the life that's lived for Christ and, and not for self. So that's Kind of what we talked about last week that the Christian should live the life that's under the leadership of Christ and not under the leadership of the world. But if you do that, you will be different and you will be distinct and you may be seen as poor, hungry, broken, and you may be hated. And yet God says that's the life that's worth living. The life that is sold out for Christ. Talked about the fact that living for Jesus, and this ties into our passage this morning, living for Jesus, living in obedience to Scripture, may earn you the retaliation of the world, right? Because the world doesn't like different. And it especially doesn't like divine difference. And darkness never likes when light exposes it, right? And so when the light of Christ shines through us, as we talked about last week and kind of see this week as well, the world won't like that. And we may encounter being poor, hungry, broken, and hated, and yet Jesus says that's, that's blessed. So, I tell you that and remind you that to say that at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus kind of tells us what to expect if you're going to live the Christian life. If you're going to live in obedience and sold out for Christ, Here's what you need to expect. This, this will probably happen to you. Today, in the passage we come to, verse 27, He's continuing on in this line of thinking, but instead of showing us what to expect, He shows us how to live that life. And specifically, as we kind of break apart this sermon over the next several weeks, He shows us how to live the Christian life in regards to how we relate to the world around us. And so if we were going to maybe title this sermon or look at this 
passage and set it apart, we would call it the social Christian. Here's the social aspect of how we relate and engage the world around us. This passage this morning is one that expounds and defines the love and the charity of gospel of the Gospel, particularly in how we live it out before other people. So what, what we look at today, if you want to live in such a way that the Gospel is reflected through your life, and if you want to live in such a way that most accurately represents Christ, then this passage is for us, right? This passage is for you. This passage is how we do that. And as I was studying and preparing for this week, I thought to myself, you know, this is really one of the most common questions that I engage with in discussing with people. Christians want to know how to live the Christian life in this world in front of unbelievers in an uncompromising sort of way. And that's the age-old question. How can we be in the world but not of the world? Right? How can we live and engage this world by our lifestyle and yet not be tainted by the world or of the world or be like the world. And that's that's what this passage is going to address. So for all of you that are genuinely curious, as difficult as the text may be that we're looking at this morning, it is most applicable to us. Because we'll ask the questions this morning, or maybe rather we'll answer the questions this morning, how, how am I as a Christian supposed to interact with unbelievers in a godly fashion? We'll try to answer the question, how, how do I live as a Christian submitting to Scripture? How do I live before the eyes of a watching and resistant kind of world? How do I live in a place that honors God and yet this place I live in is so opposite of the Gospel, so opposite of Christian values? How do I respond to the hatred of the world that Christ has talked about at the beginning of this sermon? How do I best reflect the person of Christ in my life among unbelievers? Those are all vitally important questions to ask and I hope the passage this morning answers them for you. Because we need to know the answers to such things. But we need to know what Christ says about such things. What are, what are the Lord's answers to such questions? Not, not our own, right? And so in this passage, Jesus is going to address how we live out that eternal heavenly focus that He has referenced already in verses 20-26. through 26. How are we going to live in such a way that we live for eternity? Let's look at the passage this morning and jump into verse 27. We'll read down to verse 36 and we'll come back and begin to walk through it. Remember, this is the middle of the sermon and Jesus is saying to His disciples, He says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. 
For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great in heaven and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. If we're being honest, this is a weighty passage of Scripture, isn't it? In, in some regards in our minds, even even impossible. The, the breadth of all the things that Jesus is talking about here. I mean, this is a, a mouthful, right? How, how can we put all of these things into practice? And yet, this is a passage of Scripture that is so highly applicable and practical, and it's meant to be so. Jesus isn't just teaching His disciples to inform them of something here. He's calling them to obey. And He's calling them to live this kind of way, to practice these things, to engage in this new life, no matter how difficult it may be, these instructions of Christ are so countercultural and so unnatural for us. That's what makes them so difficult, right? I mean, they're not only opposite of worldly standards and they're not only opposite of worldly expectations. They are unnatural to our own hearts, aren't they? They're, they're opposite of what our sinful impulses tell us to do. And yet, regardless of the difficulty, these things are expected of us. But I do want to be honest with us, and let's just be clear up front. We're, we all struggle with these things, don't we? None of us do them perfectly. And as we'll expound them, you'll, you'll probably realize and I, I may not do any of these things perfectly, but nonetheless, as, as a child of God, this is what you are called to be, salt and light. You're, you're called to be distinct. You're called to live in light and in step with Christ. And these instructions, these are what we are to do in the face of this world. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to look at this question and, and answer it with the, the structure, the points. We're going to answer how are Christians supposed to live in the world without compromising their biblical instructions and, and reputation for Christ. So the first thing we learn about how we are to live in the world as Christians is we are to live a life of love. Verses 27 through 31. We are to live a life of love. That is the heart of the Gospel, and the heart of the regenerated Christian, the heart of the teaching of Christ here. That we are to reflect Christ by how we love one another. I believe it was J.C. Ryle who wrote about these uh, series of statements in verses 27-31. through 31, And he said, how the world would be such a better place if we only submitted to Jesus' ethical teachings in this passage. If, if we follow Jesus' social behaviors listed in Luke 6 here, how, how better of a place would the world be? And yet we must make clear these instructions are not given to the world, are they? 
They're given to Christians. They're given to those who are redeemed. And that's because these things can't be lived by those who are of the world. They can only be lived by those who are of Christ. You look at verse 27, Jesus says to His disciples, to His followers, I say to you who hear. The, the emphasis is on the listeners. Not who's saying it, although that's important, it's Christ saying it coming from His mouth. The emphasis in that statement is on who is listening to Christ. It is you who hear. And who are those who hear? It's those who've been given ears to hear, right? Those who've been regenerated. Those who can now understand the spiritual things. The natural man does not understand the things of God. They are spiritually discerned and he is unable to do them. He is dead in his trespasses and sins. But those who've been made alive and given the Holy Spirit can now understand the spiritual things. And it's to those Jesus is addressing you who have been given the ears to hear, you should hear this. And by implication, you should obey this. So, right at the outset here, let's just make clear up front that if you are not a Christian, you cannot live these things. And you do not live these things. These things are so contrary to our natural hearts that we cannot live them out apart from the enabling of the Holy Spirit. But we who do have the Holy Spirit are enabled to live these things. We can deny our sinful fleshly motives and desires and impulses and live in such a way that so reflects Christ to the world, lives in such a way that so represents and resembles exactly what Jesus is saying here in this passage that the world may know what it means to be changed by Christ. The world may know the impact of the Gospel. So these things aren't for unbelievers because they are the opposite of selfishness and pride and that is only achievable by Christians. The very idea of what Jesus is getting at here is giving of yourself. In fact, we could say, as others have, that this, these things constitute the very essence of discipleship for Christ. If you're going to be a disciple, here's where you can begin as you try to grow in your Christ-likeness. But if you are not a disciple, you have no chance of trying to fulfill all these things. Now, as we said, this is Jesus calling His followers to a life that is different from the world, specifically a life that is love, which again is only possible through a heart that knows the love of God. But let's also stress that these things, before we get into them, these things that Jesus is mentioning in these verses are habitual behaviors. They're not occasional practices. He's calling us to a lifestyle. These things should be your habit as you walk with Christ, as you grow, as you are engaging in Christian maturity and the Holy Spirit has more and more control of your life. These things should be the habit of your life. Because they are the crux of the Christian life. Loving is the crux of Christianity. It's the foundation of Christianity. It's the basic practice of believers. Love informs everything of who we are and how we interact. It, it determines our relationship to God. Love influences our relationship to other believers. And according to Christ, love even influences our relationship to the world. And even more specifically than that, love influences our relationship to enemies. How backwards is that to the world's logic? That means, church, that 
these things Jesus lists here are divine characteristics that should be true among the saints of Christ who are continually growing into the image of God. Now Jesus at the beginning here, verse 27 and 28, He lists four action commands that I, I want to share with you here as we talk about the passage. He says, number one, that enemies are to be loved. Number two, haters are to be treated with goodness. Number three, those who curse us are to be blessed. And number four, those who abuse us are to be prayed for. Things that are radical in nature, these things that really cannot be argued for on the basis of reason. They, de they defy the world's logic and rationale. Jesus even talks about that, that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. In the same sort of teaching, Jesus says, this is opposite of the, what the world says. The world says that you are to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. The world says, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say something entirely different. I say something totally backwards to the world's thinking. Essentially what we have here is God's rule of love versus the world's rule of retaliation. And the Christian must live under the rule of God's love, not the world's rule of retaliation. And how contrary is that to our impulses? These four things that Jesus mentions, I also want to point out, are given in present tense. Meaning they are to be practiced now by the believer and in continual fashion. They're not just a goal, they are to be implemented today. And they are to be implemented, they are to be done regardless of how other people act towards you. These four things that Jesus gives are totally independent from how people engage you. You are to do them and we are to live by them and we are to have these habitual practices regardless of how others interact with us. They are outside of circumstance and situation. Let's say it like this. These actions of love that Christ is calling His followers to are not dependent or determined upon the actions of others. They are determined by the character and call of God. We who belong to God must live by this law and rule of love regardless of anybody else. We as Christians are not to reciprocate in kind to the world. We're to remain a salt and light. And we do that by adhering to Jesus' teaching here in Luke chapter 6. We are to reflect and to mirror Christ to the world in such a way that it's undeniable before them, that it's even disarming to them regardless of if the world treats us as poor, hungry, broken, hated, or or hates us, curses us, and abuses us. These four examples are examples of a life that's lived by God's decree and God's changing work in our hearts. So let's begin to look at them, these, these four things, real quickly. The first thing uh, Jesus says, well, let's move on here. Verse 29, actually. Jesus begins to give explicit examples. Four examples. Uh, in verses 29 through 31, 
of how this law of love and life of love um, manifests itself. So how do we love our enemies? How do we do good to those who hate us and bless those who curse us and pray for those who abuse us? Verses 29-31, through Jesus gives some examples. First is, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, you need to offer the other cheek also. The Greek is actually a little bit more um, crude than that. The language in the Greek is, he who strikes you with his, with his fist in your jaw, give the other side of your jaw. It, it's a reference to being socked in the face by somebody. It, it's not just a little disagreement that ends in a slap and, and you walk off. It, it, it's a brutal kind of punch to the face. And our natural response, the fleshly response, is what? Retaliation. Let's respond in kind. Let's defend ourselves. Let's fight back to, to each his own. And the man who punches me in the face deserves to be punched in the face himself. But Jesus says, this, this life I'm calling you to is a different life. And it's a life of love. And it does not respond in kind. It does not retaliate in kind. It continues in self-sacrifice. Just as Christ lived in self-sacrifice. The life I'm calling you to is a life of love and it continues on in peace, not increasing violence among the world, but letting violence end with you. Now let me just be clear, Jesus is not saying that physical violence or physical abuse could be ignored or neglected or shouldn't be dealt with, right? Paul talks about in Romans 13, the government bears the sword to deal with such instances. Even Jesus, when He stood before the Jewish council and was struck in the face, He questioned and condemned such actions. So it's not that we ignore abuse or physical violence. It's simply that the Christian who belongs to Christ, and one of our characteristics of belonging to Christ is we don't behave like the heathen. We don't behave like the pagan. We don't behave like the world. We don't respond like the sinner. We respond differently. We try to win our enemy over with continued love, with continued peace. We try to show them the mercy and forgiveness of Christ and how we respond. Second thing that Jesus talks about here is if someone takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. Don't withhold your other garments. Again, the world is contrary to that, right? The world tells us that when someone takes something from you, take it back and maybe get a little interest. Take a little bit more. Because they deserve it. That's what justice is. And yet Christ says that's not what I am telling you to do. I'm saying continue to give of yourself. It's somewhat referenced again in verse 30, this same principle to the one who takes away your goods do not demand them back. Let them go. I wondered as I was thinking through this passage, what a testimony that would be to a world that is so consumed with material possessions, right? And, and we lose our material possessions and it doesn't phase us. Why? Because we have a greater treasure in Christ and these goods are only temporary. These possessions are only temporary. What, what kind of testimony would it be to say, if I lose something, I lose something. It's, it's not life or death to me. 
in some way we could say that Christ is saying don't value your goods so much that you're willing to harm others to get them back. He says let them go. Now again, this is not an endorsement of theft, right? Scripture condemns stealing. Scripture says it is a sin. It's, it's not to be done. But what Christ is saying here is don't continue repaying evil with evil. You live differently. You live set apart. Give yourself. Let yourself go. Because the truth is, how you respond to such situations like theft says a lot about who you follow and belong to. Do you respond the same way that the world does or do you respond like Christ did when things were taken from Him? Because the truth is, church, even the thief needs the example of love and forgiveness, right? Even the thief needs to see the example of Christ in us. The third thing Jesus points out in this passage is to give. Verse 30, give to everyone who begs from you. The world says hoard everything you can. Save for yourself, spend for yourself, earn for yourself. Jesus says just give. Give to those who are begging of you. Give to those who are in need. Strive to meet needs. What what a perfect representation of Christ, right? Who meets needs and met our greatest need. We ought to be doing the same. So give of yourself and give of your resources. And when someone comes to you in need, meet that need. Now this isn't saying that uh, one doesn't need to work and earn a living. Scripture is clear about that. If we're able to, we need to work and earn our own livings. But it does mean that when we give, it can be a most apt representation of the giving heart of God. What what better way to show the world God is a giver than to give ourselves? To meet needs ourselves. Now those first three things, they appeal to uh, divine grace instead of self-interest. This last one in verse 31 appeals more so to self-interest and that can sometimes according to Christ here be good motivation to practice uh, the, this life of, of love. It's the golden rule in verse 31 as, as it's come to be known. Jesus says, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Most people, and, and I agree with this, say that this verse is Jesus simply knowing all the complexities of life and knowing that our hearts can be dull to what is right and what is wrong in certain circumstances and situations. So here's a cover-all principle. Here, here's something to guide you when you're unsure of how to respond to the world and unsure how to live like Christ in the world. Do to others what you wish that others would do to you. Let this guide you in your questioning, in your complexities. It's a positive fashion. Not like the world's similar statement, which is given in the negative uh, fashion. The world says, if it's done to you, then do it to others. Jesus says, do to them first what you wish they would do to you. It's, it's a principle that says, take the initiative in love. As you live in this world and as you try to represent Christ in this world and represent the heart that God's given you that's been changed by the Gospel, take the initiative in love. Take the first step. 
Go forward yourself. It's also a principle that makes us go the second mile, doesn't it? If Christ said don't do something, we know pretty quickly when we don't do something. But when He does say do something for someone else, we're never quite sure if we've done enough. We're never quite sure if we've met that need fully. It's a principle that makes us press in to others around us. To go the second mile. To invest even more. And it's a principle that causes us to focus on the act of love exclusively regardless of the return. Do to others as you wish they would do to you. They may not do that to you. But you are to respond and act according to how you wish they would do to you. What do these things mean? These, these four things that Jesus has been talking about in these verses, what do they represent? Are we to take them in a literal fashion? Because then they would be almost impractical, wouldn't they? And almost impossible. So, are they literal or, or, or is Jesus teaching us some principles here? I, I think Jesus is teaching us some principles. That the Christian is to live in such a way that they are exposed and vulnerable to the unbelieving world. That we're not in it for self, but we're in it for Christ. And we're trying to live in such a way and show the example of Christ to the world that they may believe. It's a lifestyle that is vulnerable in self-sacrifice. That unbelievers may see the love of God and be convicted of their sin. That, that, that's the goal of how you are to engage and live in the world around you. Live in such a way that the world would see Christ in you and be convicted of their own sin. Few things in the world expose evil and injustice as clearly as love and forgiveness. I find it interesting that today's culture is telling everybody else in the world that Christianity is the detriment to society, isn't it? It's full of narrow-mindedness and bigotry and old-fashioned ideals. And yet, how these things would so radically change the world around us. These truths are given to us as Christians so that we may live out the truth and the love of the Gospel that we may institute as far as we are able to the moral and social principles of God's kingdom. But also, church, I want to say that this life of love that Christ calls us to keeps us from becoming like our enemies. As you pro progress in sanctification and in Christian maturity and you grow in Christ's likeness, you need to be set free from the principles of the world. Reject the principles of the world. And living a life of love keeps you from becoming like your enemies. So Christ says, live this life of love. Give of yourself. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who are cursing you. Pray for those who abuse you. And we'll come back and touch on those things here in just a moment. The second thing we want to talk about from this passage as we are to consider how God wants us to live in the world around us is we need to be and must be distinct from the world around us. Verses 32 and 34. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Jesus is saying, don't be like the world as you engage it. Be distinct. Be set apart. That's what holiness is. Don't engage in the affairs of life like those who are of the world do, as the sinners do. You are different. You've been redeemed and you've been called to a different kind of life. You love differently. You do good differently. You lend differently. You do good, although good may not be able to be returned to you. You love the unlovable and the outcast and the rejected. You, you lend to those who could never pay you back. That is the picture of Christ that the world needs to see, right? Loving the unlovable, doing good who, to those who won't return good back, and lending to those who could never pay back. That is Christ. That's, that's the cross. And so yes, Paul does say we are to live peaceable and quiet lives in this world. We're not to be boastful in the way that we live or trying to get, gain all attention. And we're certainly not supposed to live a holier-than-thou kind of lifestyle. I'm superior in my morality. We are to live, though, lives that are so changed by the Gospel that it's noticed. Lives so changed by Christ and in love with Christ that it is noticed. This means that we no longer look at the things in this life through the lens of the world. Right. We look at this life through the lens of Christ and the Gospel and the Kingdom of God. We no longer live as the world thinks we should live. The world does not dictate to us what is moral. The world does not dictate to us what is right and what is wrong. The world does not dictate to us how we are to spend our resources or our time. The world does not dictate to us what is satisfying, what is pleasurable, what is fun, what is happy. None of that. And my goodness, how, how desperately does the church need to know that truth? What you turn on and what you witness and what you watch and see on, on TV and hear on the radio does not determine for you who you are or how you, you are to spend your life. Right. You were bought out of the world and the world has no more bearing on us, should have no more bearing on us. The world doesn't determine the standards that we live by. The world doesn't determine the expectations of our lives and the world should never determine what our desires should be. We live by Christ. and We live the new life with a new heart that He has wrought within us and paid such a high price to secure for us. So Christ determines what is pleasurable to us. Christ determines what is satisf satisf uh, satisfying to us. Christ determines how we spend our resources, our time, our energy, our eff efforts. Christ determines all of those things for us. Not the world. Jesus says don't act and don't live like the rest of the world does. What? What credit is it to you if you live just like the rest of the world? Be distinct. And along with that, is don't be ashamed. 
that's the greatest difficulty in my understanding of dealing with other other people and dealing with my own wretched heart. The greatest hindrance to being distinct from the world is being ashamed of the truths of the Scripture. The greatest hindrance to being distinct from those unbelievers around me is being ashamed of what Christ has called me to because it may be strange. It may be contrary. It may be different. The greatest hindrance to me being distinct enough to share the Gospel is being ashamed. And how we should never be ashamed of what Christ has done for us and in us and through us. We are to be distinct. Don't, don't be ashamed. Be distinct. Now let me say, distinction from the world in, in all of its aspects, in morality and in the way you live your life and your desires and in your, in your practices, it's one expected of us. Christ says in His Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, who takes a lamp and puts it under a basket? Nobody does that. If you've got the light of Christ in you shining through you, don't hide it. It's expected of us to be distinct. We could say it like this, who has a heart that's been changed by Christ and awakened to the truth of God and awakened to the truth of the Gospel and who, who wants to keep that a secret? None of us should. Number two, distinction from the world is not only expected of us, it is good for unbelievers that they may see what Christ does in our hearts. It is good for unbelievers that they may know what grace does to a regenerated sinner. It is good for unbelievers so that they may be convicted of sin and their lack of godliness or Christ-likeness. Now let me, let me be clear here for just a moment. The distinction from the world should not be your goal in practicing godliness. Your distinction from the world has as one of its side effects conviction of sin for unbelievers. That should not be your goal for practicing godliness. If you want to adhere to the things of Christ simply so unbelievers will be convicted of sin, then you are on the fast track to being a hypocrite and a Pharisee. But one of the God-ordained side effects of living a godly life distinct from the world is that unbelievers can and will be convicted as their evil is exposed. I know that's been true of myself. Number three, we live lives that are distinct from the world for the sake of other believers. Our distinction from the world encourages other brothers and sisters in Christ, does it not? It encourages them that God's Word through the enabling of the Holy Spirit can be obeyed and followed. It encourages that the way of Christ is the best way to live. It encourages that God will help you live such a life and that Christ-likeness is possible. At least in various ways. Lastly, living a life distinct from the world is an increasing process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a process of sanctification. And it's the lifelong battle of taking off the old self and putting on the new self. That's distinction from the world. It's something that has to be wrought and brought about by the Spirit and by the sweat of your spiritual brow. Distinction of the world is valuable and important. 
because the distinction from the world is what makes Christ in you clearly seen. How do we live this Christian life in the world around us? We live it through a life of love. We live it through distinction from the world. The world doesn't determine us anything for us. The world doesn't dictate anything to us. We are not like those of the world. Lastly, and this sums it all up. We've been talking about it, alluding to it through the whole passage. How do we live the Christian life? In this world, we reflect Christ to the world. Verses 35 and 36. So, look at verse 35. But, Jesus reiterates these four beginning truths, or these a few beginning truths, but you love your enemies. Don't be like the world. Instead, you love your enemies. And you do good. And you lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. That's the first motivation to living such a, a distinct life for Christ. Your reward will be great. Christ doesn't tell us what that reward will be. He doesn't give us the details of that reward. There can be a lot of speculation, but we do know one truth. Even the smallest and slightest reward in heaven doesn't compare anything to the rewards that this world could offer. This world has nothing in comparison. Billions of accolades in this world are worth nothing compared to the slightest and smallest reward of heaven. So we're motivated by this life that we, we live as difficult as it may be and as much effort as it may take and as much practice that must be put into it. We're motivated by Christ Himself saying your reward will be great if you live according to My law and not the world's law. But then, most in, I would say most importantly, so if you do these things, your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. Sonship, daughtership, indicates reflection, resemblance. You will look like your Father. You will be like your Father. As you live under the law of Christ, as you live the life of love that's so distinct from the world, you will look like Christ. What greater desire is there among us? To look like Christ is our ultimate goal. We will look like Christ, Jesus says, because for Christ, God the Most High is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. How true is that? What we know of God and how we know God relates to us, can't we most confidently say that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil? He is both so now in present time and He was so when He walked the earth. He's kind to the ungrateful and evil now through what we call common grace. He's the provider even to unbelievers, giving them food and jobs and water and health and on down that list. He's their supplier. Even the the most wicked unbeliever in the world today is dependent upon the mercy of God for life. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. But, But also, wasn't He when He walked this earth? Wasn't He kind to the ungrateful and the evil when He went to the cross? 
Wasn't He kind when He healed the diseases of various people? When He taught the truth of God? When He explained the way of salvation? Wasn't Jesus kind when kindness may not be returned to Him? Wasn't Jesus kind when evil may instead be repaid to Him? Most certainly, yeah. We've seen that in Luke's Gospel and we will see that in Luke's Gospel. Christ lives by the same law that He calls us to live. He's not calling us to something that He's not willing to submit to Himself. He calls us to live this way because it reflects the way that He lives. It reflects the law that governs His heart. It reflects His character and His nature. It reflects His desires. When Christ was before the council again and struck on the cheek, He didn't retaliate in kind. Although imagine if Christ had decided to retaliate against the soldier who punched Him in the face. Nobody could stand. When the crowds were were chanting, crucify Him, crucify Him. He didn't open His mouth and curse them back. When the crowds mocked Him and belittled Him, He still was found healing people and teaching and making Himself available. When He was abused by the crowds and abused by the people, He still went to the cross for their sins. This life of love that we're called to by Christ, the reason we're called to it is because it reflects Christ. J.C. Ryle said this again. He said, if, if Jesus should have dealt with the world as the world dealt with Him, then we should all have been ruined forever in hell. Praise God Christ lived a different kind of life. And maybe one day an unbeliever will say that of you. Praise God they lived a different kind of life. So I could see the Gospel. So that I could see what Christ does in the heart. So that I could see Jesus is forgiving and patient. You're called to this life not because it's difficult and God is a cosmic killjoy. You're called to this life because this is the life that reflects our Lord and it reflects the Gospel. This life of love. Verse 36, he sums it up so perfectly. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. These two kind of bracketing verses. Verse 31, as you wish others would do to you, do so to them. And then verse 36, be merciful as your Father is merciful. Those are two guiding principles given by Christ on how you should live in the world around you. Live as you wish others would do to you and live under the law of mercy because God was merciful to you. Out of all the people in the world, believers should understand mercy the best. And out of all the people in the world, Christians should be the quickest to show mercy because God showed mercy to us. And so it's mercy to love your enemies. It's mercy to do good to those who hate you. It's mercy to bless those who curse you. It's mercy to pray for those who abuse you and to the one who strikes you and to the one who takes from you and to the one who begs from you. It's mercy to show them this law and life of love and compassion. It's mercy to be different from the world not submit to the world's evil, wicked standards and expectations. It's a sign of mercy to live and reflect Christ in the world. 
That's how the Christian should interact and engage with the people around us in a spirit of mercy. Because God has been so merciful to us. We should be merciful to our brothers and sisters walking together as the world watches us. They will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. What does that love look like? We walk together. We bear one another's burdens. We help each other renounce sin. We help each other grow in Christ. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Be merciful to your brothers and sisters, but be merciful to the world as well. Resemble the mercy of God. The question is now as we wrap up this passage, can any of this be said to be true of the way you live life? That's a piercing question. That's a wide, broad question. So let's maybe narrow it down just a bit. Do you live as if you've experienced mercy? Do you engage with people as if you've experienced mercy? Do you do things? Do you structure your life? Do you make your choices? Do you use your resources as if you've been changed by mercy? As if you've experienced mercy? Are you distinct from the world? Or do you listen to the same things the world listens to? Do you do the same things the world does? Do you spend your resources the same way the world does? Do you respond in kind? Do you act just like the world? Do you retaliate to those who hate you and your enemies and those who curse you and those who abuse you? Or do you reflect Christ? Do you live like Jesus? Let's, let's tie this in just for a little bit here. Let me warn you, if you're going to strive to live like Christ according to this passage, you will be seen as poor, hungry, broken, and hated from verses 20-23. through And yet remember, that's the blessed life. How can you live in such a way that your life is sold out for Christ? As you engage with the people around you, it's living by these standards. A life of love. A life distinct from the world. A life that reflects Christ. A life that knows and understands mercy. Truth be told, some of us may struggle with these things because we don't know mercy right. Some of us may struggle with these things because we don't know Christ. We may not know how to love our enemies because we don't know the love of God. We, don't, we may not know how to do good because we don't know what good really looks like. We may not know how to bless because we haven't been blessed by God with salvation. We may not know how to pray because we don't know God. Maybe, though, God is also working these things in your life. Increasing them in you. And more and more so, as you grow through life and mature in your faith, people can see more and more of Christ in you. You're not who you were a year ago, six months ago, two years ago. I see Christ in you more. That's how the Christian is to engage the world. As strange and contrary and difficult as it may be, we live by the governing principle of reflecting Christ for the sake of the world seeing the Gospel in us. I pray that we will be a people regarded as strange for such things. Rejected for such things. But ministering to people in such ways.
Lord, I thank You for this passage. As, as much as is in here, God, and, and there's so much going on and, and so much time could be devoted to these, these things individually that You're teaching, Lord. I pray that You would help us to examine our hearts. Lord, none of us do these things perfectly. None of us reflect You perfectly. But we do ask for Your help in doing so. We ask that You would shine through us in more and more clarity. That we would live in such a way that we resemble being a son of the Most High God. A daughter of the Most High God. That we would live as those who have experienced mercy, know Your mercy, and show Your mercy. Lord, this life that we live is a constant battle. We won't be perfected until we see You in glory. And yet, that's never an excuse not to strive for holiness. Not to strive to be obedient to Your Word. I pray, God, we wouldn't be ashamed of living such a life that You've called us to. We wouldn't fear the consequences of the world. We wouldn't fear what reputation unbelievers may give to us. But I pray that we would live each and every day, each and every moment, with the desire of reflecting You to a world that desperately needs to see You. So God, as we try to strive into maturity and faith and growth, let this be a springboard for us. And as we wonder how to engage those around us and live before those around us, let this be a guiding principle. We thank You that You instruct us in every matter, including how we can be the social Christian, how we can live in this world but not be of it. Help us, Lord, to better understand this passage even as we walk away from here. And help us to be changed by it, to be obedient to it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.